Good morning, church family. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 15. I'll be reading verses 1 through 21, which is the song of Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Glad you all made it through the construction, which will be over in just three months or so. Just won't, won't take too long. <clears throat> and actually, it's going to be good when it's done. <clears throat> I'd also like to make, just before I get to the sermon, um, tonight is our third Sunday night, and as we have a tradition here at College Park, we get to gather together corporately to pray, and we'll do that. Our fresh encounter will be tonight. If you've been to one of them, you know you want to be here tonight. If you haven't, then I would invite you for a first time to see, kind of have that dynamic of people gathering together in prayer, specifically in prayer, seeking the face of God. 
And we also have at 5 o'clock, an hour before that, there's a time to pray with the pastors. So if you have special, unique concerns that you would like to, to share with someone, feel free to do so before, uh, before the service. <clears throat> so this morning, we're in Exodus 15. And it's called the Song of Moses. <clears throat> and it's, it's a delightful little passage. And I was glad when Mark asked me to preach that I got this um, and sometimes I'm not so glad at some of the texts I get. This one I'm really glad for. And, and there's, there's a little bit of introduction that I want to do before we actually get into the text. And by the way, I usually give this disclaimer when I preach too, is I do a manuscript. I did it. I confess. I don't follow it. I also will confess that. So you can do whatever you want with it as far as I'm concerned. And I usually will say that just so I feel better. Not for you. Anyway, so one of the introductory points of this is that this particular chapter is mostly poem. It's in poetic form, which is different than narrative. Narrative is, tells a story. A poem doesn't tell a story. It gives, and, and one of the beauties of poetry, and I'm, believe me, I'm no poet, and I don't read a ton of poetry, but I love the poetry in the scripture because it has the ability to kind of grasp and go to the depths of the heart of people. It gets behind the story to the heart of the story. And, and I, I'm glad, as a matter of fact, about a third of the Old Testament is in poetic form, which we don't think of it that way. The Psalter certainly is, the Psalms. The prophets wrote in poetry frequently, matter of fact, mostly. And even in this text, we've been narrative all the way through uh, Exodus. And the last chapter, Mark did a great job last week taking us through the crossing of the Red Sea. And you heard the story, and now you're going to hear the song. And now you're going to hear the heart. And now it's going to go behind just, oh yeah, here's what happened, here's the events, to what the, the, the emotion, the feeling, the backstory of the actual story is. And, and you know, we're kind of familiar with that. <clears throat> uh, we, we do that in our culture as well. For example, in 1812 in the United States, for those of you history buffs, there was a war. It was called the War of 1812. How's that? So now if you're not a historian, you can say, there you go, I've got it. The War of 1812, one of the battles in the War of 1812 was fought in Baltimore. And I grew up in Baltimore. I'm a real Colts fan from the day. And I'm an Indianapolis Colts fan as well. But anyway, I remember as a kid, one of the field trips that was typical in Baltimore is you'd go to Fort McHenry. And Fort McHenry was one of the forts that was, was designed to defend the harbor of Baltimore, which was and still is a significant harbor on the East Coast. And 1812 was a long time after the United States was independent, but the British were fighting and there was the battle between the United States and Britain. And you can read it in a history book and it'll give you all the narrative, all the details. And if you're a narrative detail person, that'll be good for you. If you're not, you might want to do this. You might want to listen to what Francis Scott Key wrote about it in what's called, we've now called it our national anthem. And it's, oh, say, can you... You guys have heard this before, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. I heard it sung twice this week in Boston, once in the garden, once in Fenway Park, sung with a kind of emotion that I don't remember. I, I've heard it before, like at certain times when there's crisis. Can you see this flag? And then it says, oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. And it has a historical event behind it. I would bet most people don't know what the historical event of, of, of the national anthem is. That's what it was. And, and what that can do and what it did this week and will probably continue to do in the history of the United States is it causes people's hearts to well up. Poetry gets behind just the story and gets to the heart of it. And I'm glad God gave us poetry in the scriptures. That goes behind, and I love narrative, but I'm glad for that poetic nuancing of it that we're going to read this morning in this particular psalm or this particular poem. Second background principle is what you see in this text is the arts in worship. (laughs) 
and I was talking to Eric about this, this passage, and, and I, there's a part of me wishes I could preach the whole sermon on that. It's just unbelievable that God in his grace has given us gifts, and part of his gifts are the arts. And when you read in this text, you'll see singing, you'll see poetry, you'll see musical instrumentation, and it isn't a pipe organ. They, they didn't have one of those with them when they crossed the Red Sea. They're tambourines. I don't know where they got the tambourines from. But they must have had them because I think that they understood that part of humanness is to express with a depth that probably tambourines or some sort of music can express. There was men and women singing. It's intriguing. And I've gotten to appreciate when we have women up here singing. Miriam was the sister of Moses. She's called here the sister of Aaron. And Aaron was the brother of Moses. And I'm pretty good at figuring that out. So she must have been the sister of Moses because... You know, I, I put those together. She was probably over 90 years old because Moses was 80. And if you remember at the beginning of Exodus, this Miriam was a pretty spunky little girl. She went after her brother. You remember her brother was in the bulrushes and she goes up to no less than the daughter of Pharaoh and kind of pleads for her brother. And I say, you go, girl. Right. I mean, it's like and then then in this she's she's leading the women or she's leading in worship. I, I don't know that it even says just the women and she's singing. And so you've got the men and the women and maybe it was antiphonal, whatever it was. It was glory. And the focus was to God. And it was using all of the creative arts and, and they even danced. Wow. And they did all of that in praise and glory to the God. The third thing in introduction is that we're going to see God. He's going to be the focal point. And if you remember what Mark said in a number of our sermons, Exodus is not primarily about Moses. It's not about Pharaoh. It's not about Egypt. It's not about Israel. It's about God. And you're going to see God lifted up in this poem clearly. And the clear focus of God is going to be that he's a warrior And for some of us, we would rather a different picture, perhaps. But it's the warrior God. And listen carefully at the incredible story of this warrior God in poetic form in the 15th chapter of Exodus. So let's go at the text. I've divided the text into two sections, and they're really fairly simple. The first one is this. The warrior Yahweh, the Lord, defeats the greatest enemies and redeems his people. Or simply stated, because that's a little long. The warrior redeems his people. He's the redeemer warrior. And it's a battle. And the battle is won by the king, the lord, the warrior, who then redeems his people. The second point, which we'll pick up at the end of the the poem, is not only does he redeem his people, but he says, I'm bringing you people with me. I'm I'm not just going to redeem you and say, good luck, have fun, have a great life. But I'm going to redeem you. And then my mission, God's mission as the warrior, is to, as a warrior, bring his people to himself. Or, Or the text talks about bringing us to his abode, or it also used the term that he's going to plant us in his mountain, which I think is a fascinating poetic metaphor. So let's go at the text and let's start off with the the Redeemer God. In verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh. And there's times I would like to say Yahweh the whole time, and in, in our English translations, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and you're probably familiar with the fact that that's the unique name of Israel's God. It's not a generic God name. It's Israel's God. And they're, they're, say, they're going to sing this song to the Lord, to Yahweh. And the song of Moses is in the 15th chapter of Exodus. There's another song that is sung, that's a song of Moses in Deuteronomy. There's another song of Moses, which I think is probably one of these songs. In Revelation 15, it's intriguing to me that the Bible is one story. 
You know, it's one overarching story and there's little parts of the story that go together. At the end of time, there's going to be the song of Moses is going to be sung and it'll be this song. It's the song of the redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So that song's yet to come. So maybe we ought to practice it a little bit. (laughs) So we're ready for that great day. So they're singing that song and then here's the poem. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. That song to Yahweh, and it's a victory song, it understands that there had been a battle, and at the end of the battle, the ones on the side of the victor raise in exaltation the God warrior who has defeated evil and has won the battle. It reminds me, this week, what an interesting week in the life, really, of the world, and certainly in the life of the United States. And you know, um, you almost had to have been in some place if you don't know what was going on. I just remember, you know, kind of watching TVs no matter where you went. And when that last guy was caught, you remember? And there was that sense of just rejoicing, exaltation, praising, trying to find out who to praise the police. And, and by the way, I think all, I was, I, I really was kind of proud to be, you know, an American. And, and, and I don't think that's a Christian thing. I just think that's a, I, I just am. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad we've got police officers. I'm glad for that. You know what I'm glad for even more than that? That there's a king and a warrior whose name is God, and he defends his people. And so I say, we gather together on Sunday morning, we thank God for the police force, for the military, etc. And on a greater way, we sing praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And, and I hope you sang that song this morning, because if you didn't, you ought to repent, you ought to sing it, not now, but in a couple minutes, you know, on your way out. Praise to the Lord. That's what he says. I'm going to sing praise to the Lord. And then then the next part of of this kind of um, verse of the poem is, The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And and the horse and his rider is probably referring to chariots, where there's a horse in the front, there's a rider in the back, and they're coming after. The symbolism is, it's the... It's, it's the seed of the serpent. It's the, the, the kingdom of this world is coming after Israel, the people of God, the kingdom of God, and they're coming after them, and suddenly Yahweh picks them up and throws them into the sea. And, and it's a great victory. And it's a victory that demands a warrior God who has the capability of doing such a thing. As a matter of fact, one of the translations that I read as I was studying this was not just threw them into the sea, shot them into the sea. It's not a, not a passive God. It isn't as though he just stood around and said, hey, I hope everything works out. He's a God that said, I'm going to assure that everything works out. As a matter of fact, I'm going to come to the aid of my people and I'm going to defeat evil and watch me do it as I, as I shoot them into the sea. You, if, when you read this text, and Mark mentioned this last week, you, there's, there's got to be a little resonance in the back of your ear that remembers the beginning of Exodus. You remember the beginning of Exodus? And Pharaoh thought he was being threatened by this ever-increasing multitude. His solution was population control, take little babies, throw them in the Nile River. I'm a grandparent. And I'm not old enough, but I'm proud to be a grandparent. And, and I've got, we've got three little kids under the age of three. And if somebody wants to take them and throw them in the Nile River, you know what I think? I don't think good things. I think, warrior God, come and avenge those little children. And it isn't just the little children. It's that whole reality of evil that does the most twisted and diverse things. And we need a warrior that takes that kind of evil and doesn't passively watch it. But the warrior smashes the evil, that's the picture that's there. And I'm sure that that would have been in the, eye, in, the, in the heart and the mind of the poet when he thought about casting into the sea. Look at verse 2. Here's, here's what the redeemed ought to be saying. The Lord is my strength and my song 
and he has become my salvation. And here's what makes for a good poem. It was written in Hebrew. And if you translate it into English, it's going to lose. But, but notice the poetic nuance that's still there even in the translation. And part of it was the, the, the strength of the translator. The Lord is my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. Strength, song, salvation. That sounds poetic, doesn't it? So you ought to walk out of here. And as you go over the little gravel stuff, you know, you ought to say, the Lord is my strength. He's my song. He's my salvation. That ought to be on our lips on a daily basis. That's who we praise. That's who we exalt. It's about him. It's not about me. And then look at it goes on. It says, this is my God and I will praise him. My father is God and I will exalt him. The psalmist here, Moses, was saying he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he's my God and he will always be God and he has been faithful. I love the grandfather that baptized his grandchild. Was that somebody over there? All right, I don't even know you. So my love for you is more the concept, right? It's the concept of that passing on the beauty of the glory of a redemptive warrior to our little children who need a redeemer warrior. (laughs) Then look at verse 4. Or excuse me, verse 3. I don't want to skip verse 3. Because verse 3 is kind of the punchline of the poem. And it says this, the Lord is a man of war. Or some translations say, the Lord is a warrior. And then in good poetic fashion, it kind of repeats it in a little bit different way. Yahweh is his name, and he is a warrior. And you know, I'm pretty sure, because I've read a fair amount of theology, that in our current world, the idea of a warrior God doesn't seem to strike at the sensitivities of a Western world, and particularly the United States. I think we prefer a God who's got a nice gray beard, probably a long one, means he's been around a while, and he sits around and he gives nice toys out to people, and he's a gentle God, will pat you on the back. And you know what? There's a sense in which God has those flavors to him, but don't make that your only picture of God. And if nothing else, go out of this service this morning with a praise to God. Not that he's kind of the nice, soft old man or old woman, but get this picture of God. While he is a gracious and a kind and a long-suffering God, he is a warrior. And the reason that's significant is because however you view this world, the fact of the matter is we are in a war. It's not just, oh, everything's going to be fine. You know, even after they found the last bomber, I, rem- I watched a little bit of the pregame before the Boston Red Sox played, and they said, you know, we've captured them, and we're really glad about that, and now we've scoured the place twice, and we'll probably scour it three times, and I'm going to say, scour it as many times as you want. You're not going to guarantee that there isn't going to be another bomb there someday, but go for it. I mean, do that. What we need is one that's a warrior that's strong enough to come in and resolve once for all the problems of this world. And that's what God calls himself to be. So include in your pictures of God, while you think of him as gracious, kind, all those are great pictures. Don't miss the part that he's a warrior. He's a man of war. As a matter of fact, we, we do that a little bit in our culture. Like we'll elect presidents who were warriors, like George Washington. I, don't, I just don't see George Washington as a pansy. I see George Washington as a guy who... Then he crossed the Delaware. I know this. He threw a dollar across the Potomac River, allegedly. That's supposed to be a joke. That was fiction, you know. He chopped down the church. You remember George Washington? How many, how many of you guys know? Yeah, he was the first president of the United States. Anyway, he was the general of the American army that defeated the British. 
Yeah, I, that one didn't work that well, did it? Anyway, he became the president of the United States. Dwight Eisenhower was a great general in World War II, became a president of the United States. We like, I like, superheroes. You know, superheroes. The Supermans, the Batmans, the Spider-Mans. Um, Spider-Men, maybe. I guess it's not Spider-Mans. And, you know, what they do is they, they, they are the good guys, and when the bad guys come, the good guys go against the bad guys. I kind of like the vigil, vigilante shows. You know, there's one on now that has this machine, and the machine can tell when evil's going to come. And so this guy with a black coat goes. And, and, you know, he goes, and there's like 20 guys coming at him point blank, and they're just firing away and never hits him. And I'm like, come on. One of those had to hit him. And then he goes and fights all 20 and beats them all, takes the girl, they're off, and he saved the day. You know, we long for... A warrior, and when you read the scriptures, the ultimate warrior that I think is prefigured in this psalm or this song is Jesus, the warrior Christ. And whatever you think he did on the cross, you see, the world would look at it and say, you're a defeated Messiah, you lost the battle, you weren't strong enough. But the redeemed of God, we say the exact opposite, don't we? We say on that cross, he fought the ultimate battle against evil. And he defeated Satan and he defeated sin. And the offer of that crucified Lord is that I am the warrior king who has succeeded in the battle against evil. And I can offer to you my righteousness. I can give you what you can't do for yourself. That's the ultimate statement of warrior. And that's who's described, I think, at least prefigured in the Exodus and will later come out in, I think, clear fashion in the New Testament. The fact is this. We need to sing, Yahweh, Jesus, you are our warrior. And we love you for it. Then look at verse 4. And I'm going to try to go kind of quickly through this, which is easier said than done. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea. A, A very similar motif to the horse and rider. And again, I think Pharaoh represents, if you were here for our Think Conference on biblical theology, Pharaoh, I think, represents the seed of the serpent, the the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of the world is cast very intentionally by Yahweh into the sea. And then it says, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The point there seems to be, Pharaoh didn't say, there go the Israelites, let's send, uh, let's send our B team out there. I mean, they're, they're, they're running, they're scared, we can take them. He sent his best Warriors against the warrior God, the end result was they're sunk in the Red Sea. Verse 5, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. You know, the picture of a stone, as a kid, if I came across water, and I lived in Baltimore, close to the Chesapeake Bay, we came across water a lot, and I thought there's things you can do in water. You can jump in it, you can swim in it, and you can throw stones in it. And throwing stones in it always seemed like a good option. And my perspective was, the bigger the stone, the better. You know, uh, you could skip them. But then you also, and actually a couple weekends ago, I was out. My wife and I were out with our granddaughter, one of our granddaughters. And we were out, uh, and we happened to be by a body of water. And she did what all good grandkids ought to do. She picks up rocks, throws them in there. And I'm like, right on, go for it. And watch granddad. I'm going to pick up a big rock, and I'm going to throw it out there. And it's going to splash. And you know what the rock does? <laughs> Goes all the way to the bottom. And that's the picture that's here. The picture is that, that, that God sunk them like a stone. Verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. And I know some of you are left-handers. And some of you think you're discriminated against. How many left-handers? Raise your left hand if you would. <laughs> Praise God for left-handers, especially if you're on my baseball team and you throw that curve that's just really hard to hit. 
and, and yet in most cultures, right-handers are more the dominant. And the picture is uh, the arm of strength, and it's the arm of Yahweh comes. There's this battle between good and evil, between Pharaoh and the right arm, or the right hand, is glorious in power. Thank you, God, for your right arm. Your right hand, oh God, shatters the enemy. It isn't just you kind of beat them. It's you shatter them. There's no repair. You have ultimately won the victory. I like that picture. I, I like it while I've got my eyes wide open. Verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. Also in contemporary theology, the idea of a furious God isn't often... The word wrath is sometimes used. And it's not a capricious... That's a, that's, that's a good word. It's not just a God who says, ah, just randomly I'm going to wipe people out. It's a God who's after evil. He's after those who are opposing him. And he stands in the defense of his people. And his wrath is the rightful response of a holy God when confronted with those who want to destroy the kingdom of God. That's, that's what God does. And as a matter of fact, they're praising him for his fury. That In the end of verse 7, it consumes like stubble. It's kind of like those 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 raging fires out west that we've seen on occasion. And, and I've never been out there, but I can just imagine it's so dry that when the fire hits, it just, it just bursts into flames. And the best of our firefighters are praying for the God warrior to bring some rain because we don't have what it takes to be able to solve that. Look at verse 8. Um, verse 8 is an interesting. It says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. Have you ever thanked God for his nose? Does, does God have a nose? It's a, it's a word picture, right? Poetry can do that. Poetry can paint God with a nose. And out of his nose... You know what comes out of my nose? You don't want to know. And we're among sophisticated people, so we pretend like nothing comes out. Well, what comes? look what comes out of God's nose. The blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up. So whatever comes out of his nose is different than mine. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the picture is this. The warrior God sees his people with the Red Sea on one side, Pharaoh's armies on the other, and he... And then the waters divide, and they're congealed. And I, I got a kind of a graphic picture of congealment, or whatever that, whatever that is, because I, I replaced a toilet a couple months ago. It was an exercise in futility. It demonstrated my total lack of ability at home repair, but I, I finally did it. And, and I got this little thing. It's a little package that says, if you stick this in the toilet bowl, the water will congeal. And I'm like, congeal. Let me think. What does that word mean? I don't know, but I'll put it in there. And it kind of turned into like gummy stuff, you know, so that when I took the toilet out of the house, I didn't spill it all over the living room. Toilet water in your living room, that just doesn't sound very good. And it congealed. That's the picture, as though God did what no one else could do. He congealed the water. He made this incredible passageway. It was for the deliverance of his people that only a one like the warrior God can do. And then look at the next verse. The enemy said, you know, the picture is on the side. There's the enemy. It's Pharaoh's army. It's the seed of the serpent. And the key word in that verse is the word, it's the first person personal pronoun, which is the word I, or the word my, I, my, I, my, I, my. And that's what the enemies of God are after. They want their kingdom, not his kingdom. They want I, they want me, they want my, they don't want him. Look what they say. The enemy says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil 
My desire shall have its full fill of them. I will draw my sword. Can you imagine the sword? It's, it's, I think it's probably about that big in contrast to the sword wielded by the almighty warrior God. I'm, I'm going to take my sword and then look where the sword is. It's my hand shall destroy them. Wickedness comes after evil and says, I'm going to destroy them with my hand. And their hand would look like my, forgive all the grandchildren. I've got like, she was born in, 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 this, in, in January, however old that makes her. She's got really little hands. Alex is her name. I love her little hand and my big hand. And, and you know, if she were to ever put her fist, which she'll never do this. And in and, and some sort of defiance, it would almost be, a, be laughable, wouldn't it? That little versus the big and this little warrior, the kingdom of this world is going against the kingdom of God. And the answer is verse 10. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Take your piddly little swords and your measly hands. And at the end of the day, God will defeat evil and he will defeat the foes of his people. He defends his people. That's what the warrior God does. And his arm is big enough to do it. And you can compare it to any other arm. And they just don't compare. Verse 11 says this. Who in the world is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It's good poetic rhetorical fashion. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in your glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer is no one. I love our police. I love our military. But don't think the police and the military are God. They're not. And they don't claim to be. At least not on their best days. They don't. We need a God warrior who can take and is glorious in all his deeds. And he can take even the gods and defeat them. I heard a guy give a lecture on this. Uh, this particular passage and the Old Testament nuance of gods. And when we think of Old Testament gods, we tend to think of wooden idols and that kind of thing. He argued this, and I think rightly so, that behind those wooden idols, probably, particularly in some of the locations around the Middle East, w- w- there was actually a demon. And, and I'm not a big demons are behind every rock, but you know what? We ought to be people that realize, because Paul talks about it, and that is there's a spiritual warfare going on in this world. And that's way out of my league. And it's way out of your league. And it's not way out of God's league. Because God, take all the demons, all the spiritual forces, take all the humans that are in conflict against the kingdom of God, put them all together with their measly little swords, and the God Almighty is going to do, look what verse 12 says, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them up. God Almighty, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, to the warrior of God, because he defeats evil and protects his people. Now, the first part of verse 13 concludes this first section. And and this is really a cool statement. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And the word redemption comes out in this text. And I believe that as you read the rest of the Bible, you'll see that word redemption fleshed out in newer and greater nuance. And it's begun here. Actually, it was begun probably before here. But the great statement of redemption in the life of Israel was they went through the Red Sea. They came out on the other side and they give glory to the warrior God who redeemed them, who was their redeemer. And you know what? I'm here to tell you that that warrior God's name is Jesus and that he has taken us. And I think the picture is right because I think Paul talks about it in Romans 6. He talks about as we were and as we, as Christ died, we are baptized into the water and then we come out with newness of life. As a matter of fact, I hope you were listening this morning and watching. There are very few things in the church 
um, of church events of more significance than this. And, and I've become pretty convinced that an Old Testament picture that led to this would have been the crossing of the Red Sea. That when you come, the picture is this. The redeemed of God walk down the steps. The redeemed of God are in the water. And the redeemed of God are giving testimony. I don't think the water is sal- salvific or it doesn't give justification. But it is that statement, that crowning statement, that poetic statement of we die with Christ and the warrior Christ has defeated death and therefore we're risen with him. And it's not just a hollow picture. It's not just a strange thing. It's a picture that glorifies God for his defeat of evil and then for his bringing his people to himself. And you know what? If you're here this morning and you thought that was strange... <laughs> On one level, you may be right, but I'm here to tell you that your only hope in this world is going to be a God who has defeated evil and who can come to your life and forgive you of your sins and can offer to you eternal life pictured by coming out of that water, standing on the other side of the Red Sea and singing praise to the warrior God. And boy, and if, if in faith you haven't trusted Jesus, if you're going to take your little sword and say, I'll go out the world myself, I would say good luck with that. But what I would rather say is rethink that, that you need a warrior bigger than you. And so do I, and so do all of us. And he offers his redemption to his people that comes out, I think, so clearly and beautifully in that text. Well, the first part of the psalm is a psalm of glory to the warrior who has defeated the evil. And then not only that, but he's redeemed his people through the waters of the Red Sea. Now look at the second part, and it's at the end, or the second part of verse 13. It's not only does he redeem them, but he says, I'm bringing you to myself. You're coming to my house. <laughs> not just go find your own house. Not just, good luck with life now. I've taken care of your sin. Now you can figure it out. It's, I'm bringing you to me. And look how it says it at the end of verse 13. Let me read the first part of 13. You have led in your steadfast, your said love, your, your, your covenant loyal love. That's a great Old Testament poetic word. You have led your people whom you've redeemed. And then here's the second part. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You've brought them or you... And, and by the way, the tenses here in these next couple of verses are past tense as if it's already happened. And it talks about Philistines and Moabites and Edomites and Canaanites. And that hadn't happened yet. That God will defeat all of them. And they hadn't even gotten, they barely gotten out of Egypt. The picture, I think, and the NIV actually translates it with a future tense. I think the, the, the statement is this. It's so sure that the warrior of God will bring you to himself and defeat all of his enemies that you can count it as if it's already done. I don't know if you've ever read the scripture where it talks about this already, but not yet. It talks about we have a place secure for us in heaven, but we're not there yet. And they were not there yet can be part of the challenge of life, isn't it? <laughs> and here's what the redeemed often say. Lord, how long? That's, that's what the saints under the throne say. And I've said it. And, and how long? is moderated by the fact that the warrior God says, we're on a journey, I'm telling you what the end is, and in the meantime, you need to trust me. And you don't just trust me as just being like a good fellow partner. Trust me as the warrior God who can defeat evil and has defeated evil. Now watch how it's described in verse 14, 15, 16. Verse 14 says, the peoples have heard. They've heard of this power of Yahweh. The peoples represent the, 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 the kingdom of this world, the ones who are not God's people. That's actually a specific term and a specific nuance in the Old Testament. It's the nations for whom in the New Testament God calls us to go and proclaim the gospel because the nations are in rebellion against Yahweh. Psalm 2 talks about them. 
that the Lord, the, the nations plot together against the Lord and his anointed. Well, these people, and, and he's going to specifically mention some, but they represent the, the kingdom of the world. They've heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia, meaning that as the people of God move through the land, coming to the promised land, they're going to be confronted. You remember the Philistines? I mean, the big Philistine was Goliath. And he was a representation of this nation that at times seemed to have great sick. They were a huge thorn in the flesh against the Israelites. I think many times David and Saul and others would have said, God, get rid of the Philistines. And on some level, God did. On another level, they seemed to just keep hanging around. And then verse 15, now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Edom were the descendants of Esau. And, and they created problems for Israel. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab who... The Moabites were the descendants of Lot in one of the most kind of disgusting Old Testament passages of Lot and his daughter, one of his daughters, and the, and the product of that was, were, were these, these Moabites. And then the last, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. When you read through the rest of Exodus and you read into Deuteronomy and you read into Joshua and you read into Judges, you're going to say, wait a minute. It seems like those guys are out there still battling the people of God. The picture is this. This warrior God is going to take his people from redemption to the final state of his abode. And there's going to be some rocky roads that are going to be in there. But make no mistake about it. Yahweh will defeat the enemies of his people. He will defend justice. He will be the God who saves his people once and for all. And so it's stated even as if it's already happened. These, these people are all trembling because they realize when we go up against him, we do We don't have a chance. (sighs) The end of verse 16, it says, Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Another way of saying that is God is saying, I'm never going to leave you and I'm never going to forsake you. And as you go through whatever it is that you go through, the Redeemer warrior God is going to take his people and the end of his redemption will be, I'm bringing you to to my home, to my abode. Verse 17, I love verse 17. The poetic picture is beautiful. It says this, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. This is speaking to the Lord. It says, Lord, I praise you because you're going to bring your people and you're going to plant them in your own mountain. The place, O God, which you have made for your abode. You're going to plant them in your dwelling place, in your house. It's kind of like the end of the 23rd Psalm. You remember, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in a really nice house the rest of my life, I'm going to dwell in the house of Yahweh, in the house of the Lord forever. Well, that's the, that's, that's the end game. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, that's the end game, the end of the goal. And, and can I tell you this? If you're an Israelite, you better get your eyes on the end goal because what happens between now and then may be a little rocky. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come Grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace is going to lead me home because the dispenser of grace is a mighty warrior, and his name is God Almighty. That's who he is. I had to give a visual aid just because, and again, I said last time, you guys have, you've incited this. You've told me that they're helpful. So I went to, I went to Menard, not Menards, one of those places that competes with Menards, Lowe's. Last night, and I wanted to buy this, so I bought it. The reason I bought this is because it was the cheapest single thing I could find. And it's a plant. I want to buy a plant. Because look at the picture. The picture says this. You will bring them and plant them in your own mountain. 
And so I'm thinking it's allegedly spring in Indiana. And allegedly someday we can buy these things and actually plant them. And if you did that last night, you may have to do it again. And I really trust that someday that will actually happen. So I went and bought this thing. And, and as I look at this thing, it's like in this temporary container. And I'm pretty sure my wife's the planter. I'm not. That the intent of this is to take it and plant it someplace. And the intent of what God is doing with his people in Israel and with us is not that we're satisfied with where we are. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And that doesn't mean I think the final estate or the final destiny is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And yet the reality is the earth as it is now needs a lot of redemption. And God's in the process of redeeming and cleaning it up. And at the end of it, he's going to take us and he's going to plant us in his mountain. And so then you could say, well, what's the mountain? Good. I'm glad you asked that question, which you didn't ask, but I asked it for you. And you can study Old Testament theology, and there's a couple of options. It could be in a couple of chapters we're going, to find, we're going to find Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a glorious mountain where God gives the law to his people. And in that glorious mountain, he said, don't touch the mountain. Don't even let your cats touch the mountain. Because Israelites wouldn't have dogs. I don't know if they would have cats. Because if your cat does, the cat dies, because I'm a holy God. Maybe it's that mountain. Maybe it's the mountain of Jerusalem. David conquered and it became the city of David. And on top of the mountain, there was the the temple mount that was built by Solomon. And God met with his people. Maybe it was that or maybe. Just this week, I studied with a group of guys, Hebrews 12. You ought to read Hebrews 12. And it talks about this incredible mountain of 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 Sinai and how that in the old law, the old covenant was where the people went. But now we come to, and and the way the text describes it, you have come to Mount Zion. You see it up here? Mount Zion, which is eschatological, meaning it's kind of, there's a future sense to it, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. I'd like to read, you know, you could take about 10 hours and study that two, those two verses. Here's the point of those two verses, that the God who redeems is bringing his people. And the figurative poetic statement of that is to Mount Zion. We used to sing, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. I don't think we sing that anymore. But the point is, we're going to, and you're, the way you make it from here to there is you keep your eyes on the warrior and you keep your eyes on the destiny because you're going to go through life and you're going to say, man, this stuff of life. If I don't believe that there's a Mount Zion out there, if I don't believe that God's going to plant me in his mountain, I'm not sure how I endure, but I do believe it because that's what faith does. Then look at the last verse, verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever, which ought to be a song. And he shall, I'm not a singer, shall reign forever and ever. You know, you know that song. I mean, we ought, to, we ought to be the people of God who we wake up in the morning and say, he shall reign forever and ever. And that includes today and tomorrow and all those days until he plants us in his mountain. So what do you do with that? Well, let me give you two quick applications. First one is this. The people of God ought to praise the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. You know, of all the things that you can do as a creature and a redeemed creature of God, there's nothing that's greater than praising Him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Here's my problem in life, and that is that I get stuck in the stuff of life. I get stuck in the stuff of life, so I miss the one who is the focus of life, and that is the God the creator, the redeemer, and my savior. 
And boy, if you don't know Jesus this morning, there are going to be people up here. I'd love to talk to you because try all the stuff you want. Here's what you need. You need to be a person that realizes the redemptive work of Christ and then praises that Redeemer. Second point is this. You know what? We need a warrior. When you think about God, don't leave out of your thoughts the idea that God is a warrior and that God defeats evil so that when you come to those besetting sins in life, those sins where you say, I just can't overcome my lust. So I look at porn all the time. I can't overcome my greed. So I wish I had what everybody else has. I can't overcome my fear. And by the way, all those are not pansy little easy things to get over. Those are tough. That's tough stuff. But you know what you bring to bear on that? There's a warrior. And that warrior is God himself. And he has gone into the face of evil and has crushed it. So that in Romans 6, here's what Paul says. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And there is hope for the redeemed because we've got a warrior God who not only redeemed us, but he said, I'm going to sanctify you and bring you to myself. And I'm the efficient and sufficient agent for your sanctification. And then some of us, man, we've got people in our church that are suffering. You know, you look at our list and we have people that have died recently. Ten years ago in June of this year, my mom died. She was a member here at the church. And, you know, that just happened to strike me as I was preparing this sermon. Because you know what it says in the Psalms? It says, yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear evil. And you know why? Because the warrior God is with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you could say, well, if if he's really a warrior, he would do away with death. Don't take my mother. And I would say, he has conquered death, hasn't he? And my faith is going to be a faith of patience. It's going to say that day will come when the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive will be together joined. And I think the inference would be from this text, we'll be planted together in that mountain of God. And between now and then, as you go through those difficult times of life and you struggle with sickness, you struggle with financial problems, you struggle, take all those struggles that you have. Here's the praise and glory. It goes to somebody that's stronger, that's greater, that is your savior, that's your redeemer, and he He's a warrior. And he's a warrior that loves his people. You know, I want to close with this quote. Outside of the Bible, this is maybe my favorite quote. It's from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And I'm not the most literary person in the world, but it's an easy read. So if you haven't read it, read it this afternoon after you read your Bible. And then if you aren't into reading, then get the video. The video is not bad either. And, And you know the story. The story is these kids go into this kind of mystical wonderland. Um, and as they're in there, there's this conflict between a lion and between a witch, and, and it's in Narnia. And, and so the kids are finding out a little bit about the lion, and they happen to have met two of the most fascinating characters in the whole book, and that's Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who have an interesting marital relationship between the two of them. And so one of the kids says to Mr. Beaver, about the lion, I want to figure this lion out. He said, or, or I think it was she, said, so is the lion safe? I mean, he's a lion. And Mr. Beaver, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And if you want a safe God who isn't a warrior, who doesn't fight against evil, who doesn't have the tenacity of the lion of the tribe of Judah then you don't want the God who redeems people because the God who redeems people is that warrior who goes after evil, defeats evil, and brings his people to himself. That's the God we want. 
Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for poetry, Lord, that can explain and, and describe things that are deep. I thank you that you're a warrior. You fight for your people. You fight against evil. And it's so clearly symbolized in Jesus. Not symbolized. The reality is Jesus died, defeated evil, and he died for his people. He died for us. And Lord, if there are some here this morning that don't know you, draw them to your kingdom, warrior Lord. For those of us that are, may we cling to you, to your strong right hand. And may our eyes be fixed on you and on your promise that the day of planting will come. And Lord, we say, come quickly, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, College Park. Have a blessed day in the Lord.